On this episode of Business Interrupted. What do we do with our employees that are in a sanctioned country? Or as we see some of these tech companies get sanctioned and we start to lose the ability to communicate with employees through kind of like public means, how do we get in touch with people, track them, not necessarily monitor them, right, but make sure that they're, they're okay? What sort of redundant means do we have to be able to, to do outreach and help people and help them get through these, these tough times? Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellon Solutions, we're hearing from the world's best leaders as they get into specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada. As resilience professionals, we spend a lot of time preparing for the worst situations imaginable. With the recent conflict in Ukraine, and as geopolitical tensions continue to escalate, we're now seeing some of those worst-case events become reality. Whether it's government sanctions, cyber attacks, or as-yet-unrealized consequences, the effects on business resilience around the world could be significant. In this episode, Michael Bratton, a director in Castellan's consulting organization, joins me to break down some of the immediate consequences we're seeing as a result of the war in Ukraine. We're also discussing why preparing for severe yet plausible scenarios is now more important than ever. As we join the conversation, Michael and I summarize some of the concerns we've been hearing from our customers and how they could be applicable beyond current events. I guess the first topic that I would bring up for for discussion here is influence operations, the impact of social media, and how that all kind of goes together, you know, to play into how companies are reacting, how that affects service delivery, et cetera. So when we talk about influence operations, let's let's unpack that a little bit. Is that as simple as there's influencers out there on social media that are they're banding together to kind of influence decisions that private sector organizations are making above and beyond? government sanctions. So for example, company X has decided to shutter its operations in Russia and because of public backlash or kind of feelings like it's the right thing to do. Is that what you're getting at there? Yeah. And I think there's a couple of dynamics to it. On one hand, we know that you know governments are kind of engaging in these, these types of activities. But to your point, what we're seeing is you know companies kind of taking a stance and from a PR perspective, or just because it's the right thing to do. And certainly I think there's good examples of those, Microsoft, Samsung, McDonald's as a, as a couple. But what we're seeing is certain operations then get directed against them, right? And there's certain kind of ramifications where, you know, companies can come out and take a stance. And I think that's admirable, but I want organizations to be aware that, you know, there are in some cases consequences for that. And I think there's a couple different pathways to explore there. So the first one is, you know, I was on Twitter the other day and I was kind of like just looking through some of these companies that did come out and, and make these stances against the war. And you can click on it and open the comments and just see the litany of different replies to those. Now, on some of those, it's just kind of your normal banter. I wish they would have done more. I wish they would have done less. But you start to look at those and you see kind of like strange comments, right? That maybe bots or, or influencers from other countries. And what kind of scares me is on one hand, it's up to the PR folks to understand how to deal with those. But the other part is it also shows that organizations are starting to be targeted by foreign entities, right? And targeting on social media or in response to an influence operations campaign can very 
quickly lead to being targeted in other domains like the cyber domain, et cetera. So that's one trend that I've kind of just been been noticing. And I'm curious to see how that kind of gets ramped up. And we can talk through, of course, mitigation strategies to, to deal with that type of stuff. I appreciate the clarification. You know, obviously we were addressing reputational issues, not just for what's taking place in Ukraine, but really across the board. And certainly this is no different. You know, the other interesting thing, if I can just kind of jump on the topic of influencing operations. So maybe it's kind of like a second, third order consequences. When we have companies that are making the decision to close operations or stopping the delivery of products and services in Russia, as an example, because of the conflict, it's interesting in that there's obviously the decision that goes into that, but then there's also the companies that are ramping up to be able to prepare to at some point reopen. And what are the implications there in terms of supply chain, access to human resources to be able to go ahead and operate and the recognition that there's obviously the employee relationship that has been severed in many ways. And so it's really interesting and there's a lot of uh, challenges here. And the, the reason I bring that up is just the observation that yes, there's the decision, but also there's the the planning ahead, if you will, to, you know, how do we go ahead and resume operations at some point in the future, whenever that may be? Certainly. I was sitting in a briefing this morning where I was listening to somebody from the FBI who was talking about laws that Russia was passing, you know, in some cases pretty quickly because of this. And some of the laws that were being passed specifically targeted companies that were operating in Russia or had previously done so. For example, there was one piece of legislation that if a company were to decide to leave Russia, the Russian government, as long as there is like a certain percentage of ownership, could basically seize assets in that country. So that plays into kind of contingency planning where not only do you decide to suspend operations temporarily, what do you do if those things that you need to do business get seized, right? Certainly to add to the, the talent management and things like that you mentioned. The other part is in some cases we're seeing laws go into place and, and companies always have this to some degree but requirements to include things that allow for interceptive communications for things that are going on in country. So if a company decides to go back into Russia, now there's this law saying that the government can intercept communications and it's a pretty easy warrant process. How does that affect things too? And how do companies need to potentially like segment other parts of their network to kind of minimize that threat? So there's a lot of different considerations, both from starting, stopping business, as well as if you keep business there under these new laws, there's certain restrictions there as well. Let's pivot to third-party risk management or third-party continuity for a moment. This has probably been one of the biggest areas of discussion that I've been engaged in. And what's interesting here is that it's one thing to be able to say that I no longer have access to a supplier or some form of service or material because of government sanctions. But the part that I think is extremely interesting is not just the idea of I no longer have access to a, a business partner, or a supplier, but now I also need to really start thinking long and hard about substitutes. I'm kind of curious, what are some of the things that you're hearing and thinking about, or what are your customers talking about? I think there's a couple. And to that end, certainly where, where companies have come in and started to diversify supply chains, that, that helps, right? But I think as you see the war kind of go on, you're going to see different kind of crunches as, as things progress. So, you know, for example, right now, we're seeing like various metals and things like that coming out of, of Russia or shortages, for example, like there's gases that are used in semiconductor production that are produced in, in the Ukraine. So, for example, like neon, I think a huge percentage of neon comes from Ukraine. Now, as that kind of goes forward, you know, we start to see 
crunches on downstream, right? Like we're going to see the semiconductor industry aggravated even more. And then once you get into the fall, if we get into harvest season, you know, heaven forbid things last that long, you're going to see crunches, crunches in agriculture, right? But the thing that I would also kind of encourage companies to do is on one hand, like you mentioned, it's great if you've done the, the good homework and you started to diversify and figure out where those sources are, but also understand depending on where you have looked for those contingent operations, how those countries react to the situation could create issues too. So for example, let's say that you started, you moved out of Russia, you started going to China, and then it comes out in the news that China is providing logistical support for, for Russia and new sanctions get introduced. So there's certainly like a level of risk calculus that I think has to be performed on those redundant operations to kind of understand if things accelerate, are there going to be actions that could be taken against those countries too? May not be as aggressive as we're seeing with, with Russia direct or Ukraine, but certainly worth considering if, you know, there is the potential risk that additional sanctions, if, if this were to get expanded. So that's one thing I kind of see this rolling effect and then just being really careful as that effect rolls out. Who are you using for for contingencies is is key? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, certainly this could increase in scope. This is where we get into end to end mapping in terms of not only what we need, where we're getting it, substitutes of what we need, substitutes of where we get it, substitutes of suppliers. So there's certainly quite a bit there that needs to be unpacked. And I know there's a lot of time being spent just on third party issues and the raw materials that organizations are, are relying upon. So I know you want to talk about cyber. I think right away, even before the conflict began, there were people worried about this. But what are you hearing and what are you talking about in this area? And, and frankly, like I'm a little surprised with the whole cyber domain because I honestly expected to see a lot more cyber activity. Now, I think what we are seeing is a lot of those attacks, or at least the things that are beyond business as usual, have been more so directed to the Ukrainian government and I guess that's kind of to be expected based on what's going on. But in the Ukraine, we're seeing the government targeted, we're seeing energy companies, we're seeing telecommunications. But I was sitting on a briefing this morning and kind of trying to understand, well, where else are we seeing cyber threats? And one of the, the key points that was brought up is we're seeing a lot of scanning occurring in the United States. So it's not necessarily a direct attack, but it's like the precursor to. So cyber is really, really interesting because, like I mentioned, on one hand, I'm, I was expecting to see a lot more. And there's this concept that we have of like husbanding assets, which is you keep something until the moment that you really need it. And then you use that capability. And part of me worries that, you know, Putin isn't quite mad enough yet to kind of unleash the full potential of what's out there. So that's kind of the first point is I expected to see more. We may still see more, but we are seeing kind of an increase in certain types of activities going on. But the other thing that's like I find really fascinating with the, the issue of cyber is there's a lot of considerations that we have as continuity professionals. So for example, what we're seeing the US government do is kind of in some ways dox these ransomware gangs that have previously been unconfirmed who they work for. But like the Conti group, you know, the government came out and said, yes, this is linked to the Russian government. So as organizations, we all have our lovely like ransomware plans and we have these decision matrices where do we notify law enforcement or, or do we not? And I think like we as professionals need to kind of dust that off because you know, maybe before we said, hey, we're not going to call law enforcement. But now we know that there's a, a gang out there that's doing these ransomware attacks. It's linked to a state actor. It may change the calculus of how we respond. So that's kind of one element. And I'll, I'll let you respond. But there's probably a ton of different variables that we can talk through here on the cyber front. We also talk about when it comes to cyber, it's not a question of if, but when. And in some cases, it may not be targeted to 
my organization, but it very well may be targeted to organizations around me. And that could be attacks on infrastructure. And we are the second or third order consequence down the line and wherever we happen to operate. And it might affect other public services that impact my employees and therefore they're not available. So there's a number of very interesting, I want to call them very plausible scenarios that could have pretty severe consequences that, and we're going to talk about some techniques here in a minute about, you know, how to think through planning ahead, if you will. And it remains a concern. And I think it's that that's certainly going to be top of mind for everybody. Yeah. And you bring up a great point because you had mentioned for some of these kind of like downstream things, if they get attacked, how does that influence my or affect my employees? Right. Well, if you look at what's being hit right now, you have kind of like natural gas, transportation, utilities. I won't say that are being hit, but are being actively targeted. And those go beyond just kind of the business interruption if they're directly impacted. I mean, if natural gas stops, if transportation stops, you know, that affects oil prices, that affects your employees. So there's a lot of second and third order effects that could potentially come out of what we're seeing right now. Let me throw up our fourth topic that, and before we talk about some of the kind of the tools and considerations that we, we as resilience professionals should be uh, thinking about in our organizations, and that is employees and families. We just mentioned that a couple of times. And for so many global organizations, they have obviously people and whether, and, and maybe even third parties that they're very close with that are located in, in the area of conflict or the area that's being sanctioned. And this is a pretty intense area of focus. On one hand, people may be in danger. On the other, they may be in an area that's been sanctioned and we have to almost cut ties as we've shuttered operations. And how do we go about that? For example, if it's an employee in Ukraine, do we have a role in supporting them, moving them somewhere else temporarily, giving them employment? What other information can we give them access to that might assist as they evacuate? There, there's countless considerations. Are you seeing and hearing this as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think at least where we're at kind of right now with the situation, there's kind of already been that initial knee jerk, right? Like, let's identify the people that are in the affected areas and, and take whatever means we can to kind of help them or get them out or help their families. But I think like what I'm kind of seeing now is like, well, what do we do now? Now that that knee jerk is done, what do we do with our employees that are in a sanctioned country? Or as we see, you know, some of these tech companies get sanctioned and we start to lose the ability to communicate with employees through kind of like public means, how do we kind of like get in touch with people, track them, not necessarily monitor them, right? But make sure that they're, they're okay. And that's the part that kind of scares me is being able to continue to engage employees that are potentially like compromised situations, right? So what I'm seeing right now is like the knee jerk kind of done, but how do we kind of deal with those lingering effects? And then likewise, I know I keep hitting on it, right? But if the dynamic changes and potentially other areas are affected, if we start to see these kind of communication blackouts or things like that, um, what sort of redundant means do we have to be able to, to do outreach and help people and help them get through these, these tough times? Yeah. And I think it reinforces kind of one of the foundational principles that resilience professionals have introduced into organizations is the idea of you know, making sure that we have the ability to understand where our people are, even if they're on the move. And at the same time, how can they engage us on their terms based on constraints that they may face? Being able to self-report status, self-report any issues, give them at least a channel to communicate a request for help. In some cases, it may not be able to be granted, but at least there is that avenue of communication. And I think now more than ever, I think we see that. And again, we may be beyond that those first few weeks of reacting to the situation between Ukraine and Russia, but 
there's still a lot to be learned here so we can prepare for kind of what's next. I think that's probably an important point. You and I have both said it a couple times already, which is there's the thing that's on the news, if you will, or the things that we're observing or the things that we're experiencing now. But then there's the second and third order consequences or the things that haven't happened yet, but could. How do we think about planning ahead? Are your customers in that mode yet, or are they still at the first order consequences? I'm just kind of curious what, you, what you're seeing. I think what I'm seeing is they're starting to kind of transition to that mode and thinking through, well, what are these kind of other what-if scenarios that if it were to occur in the next week or two weeks or whatever, how would we kind of react to that? And I think it kind of depends on the client, right? Because so in some cases, they're looking at kind of that tactical, oh my goodness, you know, if this expands and it starts affecting Poland or the Baltic states, do we have operations there, right? Like that's kind of the easy thing. But then to your point and the examples we had earlier is those longer term, like let's say that through some miracle things get resolved and, you know, this ends and we start up business again in some of these affected areas, like what does that look like? So I'm kind of seeing it twofold. One is that hopeful gaze to the future of what if things get better and we recover? And then the other one is like, well, what if this conflict expands? And there's probably different veins or avenues that we could explore there. Yeah, maybe that's a good reminder. What are your known knowns and what are your known assumptions? And that that's factoring into the decision-making process in a crisis. And as an example, I did have a number of inquiries uh, from customers saying, well, it's really bad right now in a lot of ways, but how could it get worse? And the idea of, and we've seen this on the news, the threat of nuclear weapons, the threat of biological and chemical weapons, does that change the calculus? What does that mean for us as an organization? Does that simply imply that our people are more in danger in region, possibly globally? Does it imply that it just may be a, a longer duration as a result of that, bring more people into the conflict? This goes back to that whole plan ahead, like you said, what if type scenario, but the question becomes, what are our dependencies, what are our assumptions, and what are our contingencies? And regardless of kind of the, the scope and breadth of the event, I don't know if you have any comments on that or you agree or disagree. I would agree. I mean, the reality is if it comes to nuclear weapons or in some cases even like NBC, I mean, we can't stop it, right? And the, the results are potentially catastrophic in, in terms of what the outcome ultimately is. The only thing you can really do is understand that if that were to occur, what are the impacts on the resources you have, right? So that's where kind of that understanding of what's available, where is it at, what resources do you need to run those assets, et cetera, kind of comes into play. So that's kind of like the the real difficult one because if those scenarios go down, I mean, you're not, you can't, you can't prevent it. You just have to react to it and make sure that you've done your planning ahead of time. But there's also like a number of different things where it could escalate, where maybe it's not as severe as, as nuclear or NBC that do require some sort of reaction as well. And I'm thinking everything from sanctions get more aggressive, issues with the SWIFT network, more attacks on financial institutions. Maybe there's countries like China that are kind of helping out Russia. They get involved in the conflict because people get kind of tired of those backdoor channels. There's like a lot of different ways you could you could go that could create issues as well. So when it comes to some of the, the tools in the, the Resilience Management Professionals Toolkit, we've learned a lot from COVID and some of those are applicable here as well, because again, we're now faced with something that has a potential long duration event that could create disruption for many organizations, obviously many people, of course, in region too. But one of the things you and I talked about in preparation for our session was borrowing from operational resilience, the idea of severe yet plausible scenarios. Well, I think with severe yet plausible scenarios, the best example I can probably give is the cyber domain right now. Because on one hand, we know 
where the threat is coming from. We know who those threat actors would likely be. And in some cases, we may know the assets that are likely to be affected. So we know that like right now, for example, the financial system is essentially target because of the sanctions. And kind of having this intelligence out there allows us to kind of craft really good, plausible scenarios. And this is where we can craft them through the plausible scenario generation process, so to speak. And then we can do exercises to kind of test and validate those. So the example I would give is there's there's certain frameworks out there where we know how Cozy Bear and all those crazy Russian hacker groups work. And we can go and track how they execute an operation, what those indicators of compromise are, and ultimately what the effects are. So we're seeing Russia, in this example, go out and do data wiping. Like that's the end result. So we can craft a plausible scenario where we say, okay, well, we're a financial institution. We're getting hit by one of these FSB type hacker groups, Cozy Bears. We know what it's going to look like, and we know that they're likely going to try to erase our data. So let's take a scenario, craft that, and make sure that we're ready if that were to occur. So ultimately, we're kind of lining up the threat that's there, the service that potentially gets affected, some sort of financial service in this example, and we know how that attack would be executed. So that's something where I would certainly encourage practitioners to take a step back from the moment and kind of look at those macro level pieces, because it is a unique opportunity to be able to kind of like war game some of those scenarios and be able to stress test in a way that maybe you haven't before. Yeah. And I even maybe even take it one step further is also inventory. Okay. Well, we've indicated the threat. We've indicated the service. We understand potentially the impact should it occur. Well, let's take inventory of what are our strategies? What are our plans? Have we exercised those in the past and how confident are we that they're viable? And sometimes you might feel that you are conclude you're perfectly ready. In other cases, you might feel the exact opposite. And so it, it helps to, you know, make things concrete and make it real, make it, you know, give you some pretty specific action items to, uh, to think through how to, to, to manage through this. I agree with you. Cyber is a big one right now that I'm seeing people war game under the guise of severe yet plausible scenarios, raw material access, uh, of course, is, you know, the big ones. Yeah. So I think the idea of plan ahead committees using severe yet plausible scenarios, the concept of substitutes and not just thinking through the lens of suppliers. To me, you know, just the idea of just always thinking about what's next, how could this get worse? And if it gets better, how can we be ready to kind of return to normal? Because in this situation, return to normal for some could be exceptionally complex. It may not just be a, okay, we, we shut down the teams and we just automatically return to normal. We may have taken some pretty specific actions to to do things differently, shutter operations in a country. So it's kind of a unique situation, but again, it's all about that plan ahead, you know, role play practice and almost be a little bit kind of the Debbie downer, so to speak, to look for the bad things in this case, but really keep an inventory and, and measure readiness. You know, you had brought up using the, the plan ahead process and using these plausible scenarios. We had talked through that. And you had also mentioned being able to kind of take these plans, dust them off and see how actionable they really are as you go through kind of a real scenario. But I know that there's a lot of, for example, I work with a bunch of financials, right? And regulated financials have to create things like wind down plans that they're forced to exit a market. And, you know, unfortunately, this is the perfect time to kind of dust those off as well. And you can do that in conjunction with longer term planning activities that you're doing and the, the plan aheads and, and things like that. So there's certain plans that maybe before, not to shame anybody, right? But maybe we just kind of created a plan because we had to have it for a regulatory purpose, but they take on kind of new meaning when something like this happens. So it's good opportunity to, to dust those off. Michael, thank you so much for making the time. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to, to reach out to you? Email's the, the best way. So um, 
michael.bratton at castellonbc.com and happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this scenario's episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to castellonbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.